0: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: The single most important part of every single waterfowl hunt is living to hunt another day. And on this episode, I'm going to talk about how you can survive hunting waterfowl in the middle of winter. Hey and welcome to another episode of the New Hunters Guide, the podcast and YouTube channel helping new hunters get started and helping active hunters learn new things. I'm your host George Kanidis and today we are talking about how to survive the coldest of the cold waterfowl hunting days. This is not just anecdotal information, this is not just an interesting idea, every year people die hunting waterfowl. A lot of people die hunting waterfowl, and they are almost all, pre- well, I mean, they are all preventable deaths, aside from maybe the hand few of people that maybe have an aneurysm or a heart attack or something. Uh, they are basically all preventable, and I'm not talking about firearms-related incidents. That is not the big thing. That is not what is killing people in waterfowl season. Firearms-related incidents are few and far between. The big culprits are so far out behind that it's not even worth talking about them together in the same episode absolutely practice good firearm safety i've talked about that in previous episodes you had to get certified in that to get a hunting license i'm pretty sure in every state in this country and you should absolutely be a lifelong student of firearm safety but that is not the big killer we have by and large done pretty good with that as a community the big things that are claiming lives in waterfowl season are two words all right two words. Number one word, cold. Number two word, water. And then the number three thing is, and I quote, cold water. Those three factors are the things that do in hunters. And I'm not just talking about like two or three people a year. There are so many deaths and near deaths caused by people not paying attention, not thinking, not observing simple safety protocols, and just not being aware of the danger that they're putting themselves in, this episode could be the single most important podcast you ever listen to in your life if you go hunting waterfowl. Why? Because it could be the one that makes sure you come home instead of floating away somewhere only to be found a month later. All right? This is real stuff, guys. It's serious, and these are things that everybody can do. Anyone and everyone should observe these simple, though not always obvious, safety principles and protocols. So let's jump into it. But first, why don't you go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you have not already. This is the podcast for you if you've made it this far. And please head to the website newhuntersguide.com and check out all of the waterfowl hunting episodes that I have there. You can just go up to show categories: deer, turkey, waterfowl, you know, you name it, it's there. We've got lots of episodes. Head to the pot or head to YouTube and check out the new hunters guide. I've got more videos about waterfowl hunting, gear, ammunition, field testing than anything else. So lots of stuff there for you guys. Um, But let's go ahead right at it. So the first thing I want to talk about is probably the biggest culprit. So if you don't make it to the end, we'll save the most people by covering this big thing first. Although the stuff that actually is probably more applicable to every single waterfowl hunter is going to come near the end. But this is one of the biggest killers. And that is the little thing that we call B-O-A-T-S, boats, boats. Boats kill waterfowl hunters. Now, the boats themselves are not running people over, but they are the cause and the the thing that opens the door to so many fatalities every year. It's unbelievable. And there's three ways that people find themselves in danger of life and limb on a boat. All right. Number one way is bad, unsafe conditions. And guys, waterfowl hunting causes you to go out in rain, in wind. In fact, the worse the weather, the better the hunting in many ways to a point. And when you're talking about water, whether that's a bay, whether that's a river, whether that's the ocean, whether that's a stream, you get into really bad weather and unsafe conditions are almost automatic. All right. This is probably the number one thing that happens on a yearly basis. You know, you've got opening day or, or you know, key days in the season. It's going to be bad weather. People are heading out on the big water and you just have big waves, big swells, but it doesn't always have to be big water. You could be on a creek. And then it's raining, it's pouring, it's windy, and all of a sudden that creek goes from calm to flood stage. And then you are getting swept away into rocks and fallen debris and trees. It it, it doesn't fail. With waterfowl hunting, we are looking at and looking for, quite often, poor weather. And poor weather and water and boats is just a recipe for disaster. This happens every year. I, I've heard stories. I think it was last year. Thirty people died in one day in one location, just in one major bay watershed area. It's just huge waterfowl hunting place. Everybody goes out that day. There were thirty foot swells. I'm not talking about the open ocean. I'm talking about you know land or water that is inland. It's seawater, but it's inland. You you are sheltered from the open ocean. And it's 29 degrees and snowy, rainy. It is windy. There are 30 foot swells every now and again. And this is inland water and just boats capsizing, people being thrown off the decks. And supposedly, from what I understand, this happens every year or every other year. Just You have days like that and people are like, oh man, the the ducks are going to be moving, the ducks are going to be out there, and then they get out there and the Coast Guard is just, just completely overwhelmed. There's nothing they can do. There's just too many guys out there on little flat bottom trout boats and everything else just cannot handle the circumstances and just the same, you've got little creeks that are maybe just 20 yards across. You got guys out there on a little flat bottom dinghy with a one horsepower trolling motor, and then all of a sudden over the course of the morning, it goes from just a gentle current to just white water, and just the water level goes up by feet. The current picks up. You can't get back to the shore. You can't control the boat. You don't have enough motor power and just you're tossed, turned, just people get bashed to pieces on rocks and debris. Stuff like this happens, doesn't matter what water you're on, you know, unless it is just like a tiny landlocked pond where there is no current, then, you know, you could still flood, I guess, if it rained enough, but, you know, by and large, the people that are hunting on boats aren't hunting places like that, and so it's just the danger level but the thing about it is as the danger level goes up with the with the bad weather then you've got duck movements going up too and that just draws people that entices people to make bad decisions to compromise their judgment and they just get out there and and seas that are unsafe and then boom so what do you need to do well you really gotta be mindful and careful you know if you have to go out on a day like that, hunt from the shore, all right? Don't, don't go out there. Don't take boats out. If it's even questionable, don't do it, all right, guys? It's just not worth it, and oftentimes, the one of the big issues is that lots of people are doing it on the same day in the same area, and the rescue services can't keep up, and you are just putting yourself in a situation where nothing can be done because there's nobody to come to help because there's so many people that have done the same thing and put themselves out there in those same kind of situations. Number two way that boats hurt people or put people in harm's way, and it's not the boats, it's the people using the boats, putting themselves in harm's way, and that is inadequate equipment or inadequate gear or inadequate boat for the conditions. You know, maybe the conditions are relatively safe, but you don't have what you need for them. You don't have life vests. You don't have the motor that you need in order to navigate the current in the waters that you're at. You don't have enough boat for that lake or for that uh, bay or whatever it is. Just people pushing the envelope or just don't have the gear. You don't have a backup plan. You You don't know what else to do. Your boat doesn't hold water and you didn't test it until... You're know you out there, it's pitch black, and you realize, oh, I got a foot of water in the boat. Now what are we going to do? These kind of situations, more often than not, though, it is no life preserver. That's the biggest one. People don't have a life vest, and they're out there, and something happens, and they get knocked off their boat, and they don't have a life vest, and now they're in trouble. Nobody knows it. It's pitch black out either at the beginning of the day or the end of the day. They don't have lights. They don't have safety gear. They don't have any way to contact anybody. And it is just a mess. So you absolutely need to make sure you've got everything and above and beyond what you need in terms of safety gear if you're going out on a boat, especially if it's dark outside. Number three way or issue that happens with boats... And of course, these aren't the only three, right? These are just the three I'm talking about today. And that is conditions are okay. The gear is okay. The equipment is okay. But the operator, the the person driving the boat or the people on the boat are not okay. You've got operator error. You've got people that become too comfortable with the boat. They're going too fast. They're making turns that are too tight they drive onto a sandbar or a reef or a fallen tree and they just create the problem i'll give you a terrible story well i guess it's not that bad because the guy survived but uh, a guy and his dad were out hunting in alaska i think this happened this past season they're hunting in alaska it was uh it was seawater but it was like an inland bay on an island there And so they're on the beach and they're duck hunting and they shot some birds. And um, they're waiting for more to come in. They're sitting there. They notice, you know, the tide's going out. The current's starting to pull those birds out further. They were still floating away. So the the younger guy, I don't know if he was maybe in his uh, mid-20s or mid-30s, he's decided, all right, I'm going to jump in the boat. I'm going to shoot out there real quick, pick up those ducks and come back. So he jumps in his little boat. Now the boat was enough for the conditions, the, the waves of the sea were not too bad. The situation was not bad. Everything was, was, was relatively safe. And he shoots out there, and he's going too fast. He's going too fast. He's not holding on well enough. He hits a wave, catches a wave that, that he didn't see coming. It's just a little bigger than his speed was able to manage. And that wave just blew him off of the boat. Hit so hard, just knocked him and all the stuff off of the boat. And there he is in Alaska. It's cold. The water temperature is 34 degrees. And the boat is still going. The motor didn't shut off. It is just still going. It is gone. And he's floating almost instantaneously paralyzed by the cold and the water. And he's in the water. He doesn't have a life vest on. The boat's just going and what he actually ended up doing, he was way too far away from shore to try to swim back and the current is pulling him out at the same time. So he found one of the fuel cans that were also knocked off of the boat. He managed with what strength he could muster in those first few moments to swim over to the fuel can and to dump out some of the fuel and catch some extra air in the fuel can. And then just grabbed onto that fuel can for dear life and hung on hoping somehow, some way somebody was going to come rescue him. And after I think it was something like two hours that uh, some other folks that were on a boat passing by, they noticed him out there holding onto that fuel can, came over and rescued him. And they said that he was probably 15 to 30 minutes away from being dead from hypothermic exposure. He was just completely and utterly a mess. I mean, it was, it was minutes from death. And they asked him, what happens? He said, you know what? I was just too comfortable with the boat. I was just too comfortable with my speed. I was just too used to it. Wasn't thinking, was going too fast, wasn't paying attention, wasn't holding on well enough, wasn't thinking, was just overconfident, overconfident, just, just prideful and just boom, Hit a big wave going too fast, knocked him out, everything went out, lost all the stuff that was in the boat, lost the the boat, almost lost his life, but thanks be to God, somehow somebody passing by saw him before it was too late. Minutes away. It's
0: only a kick. A jump.
1: A block. Ah. It's only a serve. Ah. It's only a tackle a run it's only for the fans after all it's only pressure you got this adidas and these kind of things are some are some of the most common and the easiest to prevent you gotta be careful you can't go too fast you can't be overconfident you got to treat those moments and situations and circumstances like it's life or death. All right, I'm going out to recover a duck. You wouldn't think that's life or death. But if you're going out at full throttle, riding on this little boat without a life vest on, and it's 34 degrees, man, you're just taking your life into your hands by being careless. All right, and the dad, he's on the show. They don't have another boat. This is the only boat. There's nothing that can be done. In fact, the dad didn't even know it happened. He had gone inland to to do something and uh, came back out. He's like, man, he ought to be back by now. He shouldn't have had to go that far. And after like an hour, he starts calling, trying to get service to find the rescue, something, and uh, they they weren't able to contact him on time. It was a passerby, just random person was like, hey, what is that? And so you got to not be cocky you got to not be overconfident. You've got to be careful. You got to watch out. You got to be thoughtful. Now those are the incidents that is most often involving boats. All right? Not all of them, just the three I'm going to talk about today. Of course, that is not the only ways that you you, you things you need to do to survive. Hunting on shore, Probably more people die every year hunting from the shore without a boat, just because there's more people doing it. Hunting from a boat is more dangerous. The percentage of people who are using boats who end up in these situations is higher. However, because so many more people hunt from shore, you have more injuries that happen that way across the country. And so the number one things that, or the the top two or three things that happen to people that are hunting from shore is this. They go out, the ducks are, they drop some ducks or some decoys float out and the stuff gets out too far and it's too deep and they're trying to go after it and they think, oh, I can make it. You know, the water gets right up towards the line on their waders and they're like, ah, just another step or two and I'll be able to grab that duck or I'll be able to get that. And it's just, the water's too high, it's too much, and then before they know it, boom, they're underwater. Their waders are filling up with water, and there they are. Now, it is a misconception that if your waders fill with water, it's just going to drag you to the bottom. That doesn't really happen. I've seen enough YouTube videos of guys demonstrating this, and if you just know anything about waders and garments and buoyancy, that doesn't make any sense. All right. Most waders float. And even if you, and most of the time you have air bubbles that are trapped in the waders, they never all the way fill. And so actually the waders end up being something that holds you up and keeps you from sinking kind of like a life preserver. And even if the waders absolutely 100% fill, there's not one air bubble left in them, still Oftentimes, they will float, neoprene especially, or the boots will float. But even if they don't, they're neutrally buoyant. All right, so they're, they're not like some weight that just pulls you down. Uh, the, the idea that your waders will fill with water and you'll die is not really what happens. What happens is the cold you end up in that cold water your waders fill up you're instantly soaked it can be paralyzing has nothing to do with the waders has to do with you're in freezing cold water and some people they lose the they lose motor control they lose function they're not used to that they've not practiced that they have no idea oftentimes they're not in great shape they're not good swimmers they're 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 their body reacts worst case scenario now you take a guy who's you know 19 years old on the swim team and he's used to swimming and freezing water and practices that way and does all kind of stuff and this happens to him chances are it's not going to be a really big deal you know he's going to be able to get himself out of that situation you take a guy who's in his mid 50s hasn't swam since he was 19 He's way overweight he's not in good shape not in great cardio shape that cold water just hits you all at once and then some guys have a heart attack some guys they just freeze up they just they don't they they can't move they don't know how to move they, they get confused and disoriented they're gasping for air um you know it's just it, it it's and you got of course you got all kinds of people and you got all kinds of situations and of course not everybody that this happens to dies but these are the kind of things that that do people in now that's not the biggest part though all right you got the shock and the cold and all of that again that's not something that's going to you know be lights out for most people what happens though is all right now you're drifting away you you can't get your footing and there's current there's tide and you there's wind and it is blowing you away from the shore and and it's pulling you out deeper and every minute that you're in that cold reduces the chant your ability to swim to to make decisions to try to do things to get back and now you're just floating out deeper currents got you pulling you downstream if you're hunting on a river or a stream or something, you can end up in rapids. You can end up getting just pinned to something or under something. You can get in moving water and it just knocks your head against a rock. These are the kinds of things that happen more often than just, you know, the cold water hits you and you have a heart attack or you drowned. It's something else that, that happens at the same time. And even if it's just a, you know, mo- even if it's a small lake, And you lose your footing, and you go too deep, and you fill up with water. Now, what happens, though, is because the waders float, oftentimes your feet end up in the air. So you can't even put your feet back on the ground. And now there's just wind, right? Because most duck hunters set up with the wind at their backs because the birds like to land into the wind. So the birds are flying into your face to land, which means if you're in the water or the birds hit the water, the wind's blowing them out into the middle of the water. And it doesn't have to be a big lake or a big pond. That wind blows you out in the middle and it is cold and it is freezing and hypothermia starts to set in. Within a few minutes, you can be in the danger zone depending on how cold it is and what kind of condition you're in. And if it's a lake and you're not rescued quick and it's cold enough, that can be the end. And even sometimes people do get rescued and still don't recover. So that is a big one being being losing your ground, being swept downstream or swept out into the into the sea or being pulled out by current or wind into the middle of a lake or a pond, that's a big one. Another thing that happens and this can happen in even relatively shallow water as you're walking through the water to get, you know, decoys or to retrieve a duck, and you, your foot gets wedged into something you didn't know was down there, fallen tree, some kind of debris, and now all of a sudden you are stuck. Your foot's stuck. You can't get it out for anything. The more you wrestle with it, the more tired you get, the less energy you have, and people have literally died standing there in the water from hypothermia. And guys, all of these things are reasons why it is best to not go waterfowl hunting alone. It really is so much safer to have at least one other person out there with you. Because, you know, you you start floating out in the middle of the water, they can throw you a rope. They could call for help. They could take off their stuff and swim out and try to save you, which is not necessarily the best thing you ought to do right there. But I mean there's at least options. You can try things. They could tie a rope from themselves to the shore, decoy line, something, and then swim out and try to save you and pull you back. I mean, there's there's at least somebody else that can do something. And uh, you know, if you get stuck, they can call for help. You're not going to die in an, in 20 minutes or an hour if you're just stuck in cold water with your, you know, in your waders, with your foot wedged in something. But if you're out there by yourself, you're deep in the woods, you're deep in a stream. There's nobody by that can hear you. Your phone is on the shore in your bag, or you know your your phone's now wet and soaked and not working. What are you gonna do? You can't do anything. And so you really gotta be careful about these kinds of things. And uh, you know, one thing that really messes people up is they're overexerted. Right, it's it's not when they're fresh that these kind of things become dangerous. It's they're overexerted, they've had a long day, or they've had a long season. They've been out every morning for weeks. They haven't gotten a good night's sleep since they can remember. They can hardly remember their own name. They're making bad decisions. They're they're tired. They're worn out. Their brain is fried. They they just have duck brain, and now they make a bad call. They slip. Their foot gets stuck they're already barely standing. They're barely out there. They barely have the strength to get to the place that they are. And now they find themselves in a situation where maybe if they were fresh and they were at their best, they could, they could just swim right back or they could pull their leg out of what was stuck. But they're totally worn out and exhausted and they don't have the gas left to do it. So these kind of things happen and are all preventable all preventable by just being more careful recovering a duck or a decoy is not worth your life all right it is not getting out there deep in the woods when you're exhausted by yourself no one knows where you are just because you want to have some alone time is not worth your life you gotta put safety precautions in place you know when i go out by myself uh, and I don't go out by myself often, and when I do i'm I'm especially careful about where I'm going and how deep the water is and what kind of situations that I'm in. But what I'll often do is one I'll keep my phone with me in a plastic bag and just in case you know whatever happens, I could still use it or call for help as long as I'm not submerged, but I'll tell my wife where I'm going i'll I'll let her know this is where I'm going to go this is my plan for the day. I'm going to go from here to here to here. This is the area that I'm going to be at. I'll tell her the names of the places. Now, she doesn't know where those places all are or how to get there or what or what it means. But if there was a situation or circumstance and and you know, I don't come back. I, I I'm I'm MIA. She knows who to call, my hunting buddies who know those places and know those spots and know how to get there and know where I would be if I was out there. And so worst case scenario, you know, you wouldn't be gone for days and no one has any idea. All right, that's just good sense when you take the hunter safety course, they always tell you to let someone know where you're going, what you plan to do, and when you're gonna be back. All right, even if you're not gonna, if you're gonna be back at, at dark, all right that's one thing If you're not back by midnight like okay something's wrong they're not back they're not answering their phone we should send help you know you're stuck in a, in a tree underwater your, your foot's stuck in a tree branch or something under the water and you know again you've got time time enough for someone to come looking for you and find you if you had just made some smart decisions or if you had your phone and a plastic bag in a waiter pocket you could call for help maybe if you had service You know, you just got to think bigger than what's going on. I'm not saying you can never go by yourself, but you have to take extra precautions. You have to be extra careful. And there's probably certain spots and places and things that you just ought to avoid if you're out by yourself. Now, the next part about all of this is surviving the, the coldest part of the season is what do you wear? All right, clothing plays a big part of this. And not just clothing, but your gear in general. You know, every year in every type of hunting, there are people that end up in dangerous situations because their gear is inadequate. Um, Or they're just, they don't know their limits and they're pushing themselves beyond their, their own personal limits and the limits of their gear. But with waterfowl hunting, you've got that extra factor of water, right? It's not just the cold, you know, deer hunter is dealing with the cold. All right. A waterfowl hunter is dealing with the cold and water and water amplifies the cold. Now you say, well, you know, deer hunters, it rains and so on. Yeah, it does. And oftentimes they've got a plan for that. They're dealing with that. They've got rain gear. They're in a blind. They're doing whatever. However, if it gets cold enough, it's going to snow and snow is a lot easier to deal with than water when it's 15 degrees and i've been out waterfowl hunting on seven degree mornings seven degrees fahrenheit and it is cold and you've got ice or the only places you can hunt are fast moving water and you know in the early season i don't even take thought for decoy gloves what are decoy gloves what do you need i mean just grab your decoys but when it's seven degrees out decoy gloves are a thing brother you you cannot just reach out and pick up wet decoys when it is seven degrees all right you you are dealing with factors here that that you don't deal with in most other kinds of hunting you know if you're deer hunting it could rain it could snow if you're waterfowl hunting you will be in water even if you shoot nothing you oftentimes you're going to be in water or around water and you've got to deal with that and be equipped to deal with that and have the right gear for those kind of things. I've been out on days where it was dangerously cold. And I mean, you were, you were sometimes just a wrong step away from being in a perilous situation. And I have once or twice found myself in situations where I'm like, I'm in a bad spot here. Some, this, is, this is not going good. I'll give you a quick story. So last season, we were out on a much warmer day. This one was, I think, 14 degrees. And we're out there, and we're sitting in a blind. And, man, it is cold, and it is windy. And where we're sitting in the shade, in the wind, I mean, 14 degrees is cold anyway. But, man, it just felt like the coldest day I have ever been out. It felt colder than the 7-degree day. And we're out there. We build our blind. And, you know... And we, were, we, had to, we had to really haul a lot of brush to where we wanted to put the blind because everything there had been wiped out by flood water. And so we were really moving, worked up a sweat, and we're sitting there, and man, I'm getting cold. After a couple hours, I am freezing. And we're watching some ducks about 200 yards away just splash and play, a couple dozen of them, mallards and black ducks. Just having a field day down this stream, and every now and then it looked like they were starting to swim our way, and then they didn't, and they couldn't care less about our calling or our decoys. So we reached a point where, like, okay, we are so cold, we we can't stay here much longer. We got to do something. And so my buddy was like, "All right, well, one of us should, one or both of us should go down there and try to jump those ducks." So we came up with a plan. He was gonna go down there, go around the long way come up from those ducks from the other side. And that way he might flush them and they might fly my way. He might get shots at them. He might push them to me. It was a win-win sort of plan. So what I didn't realize though, is I had gear that was wet that I didn't know was wet. And I was getting colder than it made sense to be. I had some big decoy gloves. All right. Big, heavy decoy gloves. Some of the best decoy gloves you could get for the money. These $15 PVC decoy gloves lined with thin from Rogers. Um, that I heard Josh Peck recommend from Outdoor Limits. I was like, hey, 15 bucks, and that's what he's using, and he could probably afford to buy any any glove on the market. So I got a pair of those, and sure enough, they are everything he talked them up to be and more for 15 bucks. They were and they're probably more now, you know, in this age, but. They were just great gloves. Except I got water inside them after one hunt and didn't realize it. And so they they don't they don't dry when it never goes above freezing. You know, you get them inside the glove, they're like thinsulate and and sherpa lined and they're just so I get to the, my spot that morning, I take my gloves out of the car and you can't even move the fingers. Right? The fingers are just like they're just solid. And I just thought, "Oh, the, it's just the PVC must be that cold that it's acting like that. Now, it was all the water that had soaked into the Sherpa and the Thinsulate, and it was just like stiff. And I put my hands in them and eventually, you know, got moving, got worked up, got, them, got warmed up enough to get them loose. Uh, but that sucked a lot of heat out of my hands. And then the whole time I'm using them, I'm, I mean, I'm, they're not really keeping me warm. And they're wet and they're hurting me. And so, of course, when I'm sitting there with my gun, I don't have those on anymore. I've got my regular gloves on, but then my hands are wet. Now, those gloves aren't working great, and I'm sort of just confused. I didn't realize all was happening. And so, he goes to sneak down there. Of course, it took him a long time to sneak all that way, going around and to come up on him from the hind, and he got some shots, and he dropped one, and... uh Instead of taking off and flying to me, they took off and flew straight up like helicopters, which I have never seen before. And and they were gone. So he's down there. He's got a duck. We're calling back and forth. He's like, yeah, it's out in the water. It's too deep. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll grab the kayak and then I'll jump in the water and, and come down and, and paddle down to where he's at. And so by this point, I am just shaking and shivering I'm so cold. And I'm like, great, I get to do something. So I jump up, I run back to where the kayak is, grab the kayak, throw it in the water, grab my PVC gloves that I didn't realize were wet. Now by this point, my hands are starting to go numb and I'm paddling downstream. Well, by the time all this happens, you know, this bird's not 200 yards away anymore. It's about a mile. And because there's, you know, back and forth and he's trying to get the bird, you know, from the side of the water and we're, you know, playing it by ear. What do we do? What do we do? And then he realize, all right, there's just nowhere to cross. It's too deep everywhere. And so I'm paddling and I'm paddling. I'm, I'm starting to warm up in my core, but my hands are getting colder because they're just in these wet gloves and the, the paddle's cold. And the, they keep getting water on them. They keep getting colder. So by the time I finally got back to him, picked up this duck out of the water, found a place to to land the kayak, I couldn't even move my one hand anymore. It was the worst it has ever been in my life. And I told him, I said, look, I, I gotta just go. I just gotta go. I just gotta start romping through the woods. And so I just start hiking just as hard and fast as I can, covering ground, get my fingers out of those wet gloves and just trying to warm up. And it was about a mile of walking. By the time we finally made it back to our original spot in the truck, I was starting to get hot. I was starting to get sweaty. My hands were starting to loosen up and I could start to move it again. And uh, I mean, it was, it was bad you know, had one thing more gone wrong, unexpected or whatever, had I fallen out of that kayak, um, even though I had a life vest on, I would have been in a seriously bad spot. And so, you know, I was making just bad decisions. I was, of course I was wearing a life vest, but you know, I was just making bad decisions. I was just not thinking, didn't realize what was going on, wasn't putting all the dots together, was kind of confused how I was so cold and the wind and everything else. And it's just too easy to find yourself in that situation. If it can happen to me, it can happen to you. And it's happened to people that were smarter and more seasoned than I am because you just put yourself in these circumstances where you're tired, you're, you're not rested, you got ducks on the brain, you got situations and things happening, you're not entirely sure, sometimes things are happening fast, you don't always understand, and then you find yourself in a bad spot. So what can you do gear-wise to help you when you got cold and you got wet? Well, first thing people think about is waders. You know, you gotta have waders that'll keep you warm. And there's some truth to that. When it's that cold, breathable waders are not a great idea. They're just they're they're just not a great idea unless you don't plan to get wet and you've got just in case waders. Um, if that's the case, well, you know, fine. They'll act as a windbreak as long as you wear what you need to wear under them. But if you're actually going to go in the water and get back out of the water, uh, they're they're just not a good idea. I'll tell you another just real quick story. Me and that same buddy of mine, we were out hunting on the seven degree day. So we're in our blind, we're sitting there. Legal shooting light comes to the minute. I wait two minutes past legal shooting light, and I just give a couple of quacks. And then within a few seconds, a pair of ducks come flying in from the side. It was still so dark, it was hard to even see what was going on. They came in to the decoys, we shot them, and we're hunting at this on this day, the seven degree day, in, in a creek where the water is about two and a half feet deep very safe situation. Um, I've I've been there before. I know that water. I know how deep it is. I know how fast it moves. It was very safe situation. Those birds come in. We shoot them. We both spring up. Well, I spring up to go get the ducks. He springs up too. And I'm like, what are you doing? Because I'm wearing um, neoprene waders. I've got my high and dry five millimeter neoprene waders on. And I jump up and run into the water and he jumps up and he's wearing some kind of breathable fishing waders, sock foot waders with some hiking boots on over top. And then he's got some Carhartt coveralls over top of his waders. And he just runs into the water to get these ducks. And I'm like, uh, okay. And so we both run in, we each grab our duck, we make it back out, we sit down and you know my waders are like freezing up right like the knees are like the water on them just like freezing on top of the waders and like the knees are getting stiff and they're kind of crunchy and it's kind of comical i'm still warm though because five millimeter wader five millimeter neoprene is super warm it's maybe the best insulating material for waders ever made on planet earth Him, on the other hand, he is not very warm because he's got breathable waders on. And then on top of his breathable waders, he's got these cotton Carhartts that were utterly and completely soaked in the water. After an hour, they have frozen solid over top of his waders. He is just wearing cotton ice cubes over top of his waders. And his feet in these hiking boots that they were in, they just froze solid. And we're sitting there and not very long, he's like, dude, I I, I can't I can't stay here. I got I gotta go. Like I am I am frozen. And you know, he's he's one of the coldest weather, toughest hunters that I know. And I realized you add water to the equation, doesn't matter how tough you are, doesn't matter what layers you've got on. it's just a mess. So right there, I was like, all right, we gotta get out of here. We packed up, headed to the truck, got out of there. Um, we, we decided we were going to go jump hunting after that warmed up a little bit. and We get out there, we walk, I don't know, a quarter mile. He still has these car, these frozen car hearts on him. Like, what are you doing, bro? So he pulled off these car hearts. They were stiff as a board. He just threw them on the trail, said, we'll get them on the way back. But I mean, what you're wearing and what you're geared with can make the difference between comfortable and in danger. And so on a seven degree day, I do not want to have breathable waders on unless they're just in case, right? They're just in case waders. If I, if I, you know, if we shoot birds, we're going to go in and get them and then we're leaving, right? If it's that kind of situation, you're fine, but you cannot go into the water and then come back out and keep hunting in those kind of situations. You don't have the gear on. So, you know, if you don't have neoprene waders, And you need to be in the water for decoys and back and forth and whatever. And it's seven degrees. I would just not go or find a buddy who does have neoprene waders. Let him be the designated guy. Um, But it's not just waders. It's everything else that you're wearing too. So one of the big things that I've become a fan of recently is merino wool. I really have become a big fan of merino and i did an entire podcast review of first lights 350 weight furnace merino wool base layers which after a couple years i finally was able to buy with my own money and they're the heaviest merino base layers that they make and they they came up with them for deer hunting but i was like yeah i always wanted them for deer hunting but i was never willing to spend the money for for deer hunting base layers Uh, Until I started waterfowl hunting and I realized, oh man, I need something way better than what I'm using. I need serious base layers for this because you drag stuff through the woods, you're carrying stuff, you're building blinds and everything else, and you're sweating. You can be soaking wet by the time you sit down. And even if it's not a freezing day, it's just moderately cold. You can get cold fast, let alone middle of the winter days. And so I was like, I needed to get some Merino base layers because, you know, Merino wool holds its heat even when it gets wet and then it dries faster than, than regular wool and almost anything else. And it's odor resistant and it's extra warm for the thickness and all the things that it does. You ought to check out that video on YouTube. Um, I'll try to link to it in the show notes of this episode at the newhuntersguide.com. But, you know merino wool really makes a difference and you don't have to get the super bougie high brand stuff that i got it took me years to get to the point where i could buy that you know the the amazon makes their own brand of merino lots of others make you know similar versions you just want the highest percentage of wool you can get in the base layers and as thick as you could get it 350 is the thickest i've ever seen that's 350 grams per cubic per square meter And, you know, they come in 300 and 250 and 320 and 280 and 150 and 100 and 120 and everything you could imagine. And so, but you need some kind of base layer, whether it's merino or not, that is going to keep you warm even when wet, right? And I'm not talking about wet from the elements. I'm talking about wet from your own sweat because you tend to sweat by the time you sit down and wait for the ducks to come maybe more than any other kind of hunting i have done all right elk hunting is not the same you're you're typically not gonna work up this huge sweat and then you know sit for hours motionless and do nothing you're you might have sits but you're going to keep moving um deer hunting you don't typically sweat as much cuz you're not dragging a sled through the woods and building your deer stand before you hunt in it you know you're but you know i digress So, you need something that is thick and gonna keep you warm when wet. You need mid layers that are gonna be able to pull that moisture out and evaporate it and keep you warm when wet. Cotton is the duck hunter's worst nightmare. All right, cotton is a relatively warm layer if you're active, if you're, you can keep it dry, whatever the case. But for waterfowl hunting, cotton is the enemy all right because it loses 95 percent of its insulative capabilities when wet and it seems to never ever dry whereas merino wool and a lot of the other good synthetics you know they will keep you warm even when wet and they will dry so you gotta have something like that boots matter all right insulated boots i really like the muck style boots you know muck makes a good cold weather boot so does lacoste And there's lots of others in that style that aren't as expensive as the big brand names that'll give you enough of the benefit and you need something like that for walking around for moving around what i've found is you know you only need one guy to have the waders you only need one guy to be able to go in but you're still walking around water you have to have some kind of waterproof boots you're walking through maybe a couple inches of water setting up or getting to your spot though the ground's wet whatever's happening there's snow you got to have waterproof boots they've got to be insulated the other big thing is you got to keep your head your face and your hands warm all right so for your head and face you got to have a balaclava and you got to have a heavy duty hat uh, a regular cotton beanie's not going to do it remember cotton it's the enemy of waterfowl hunting you can't have that. You need something better than that. You got to have something that's going to break the wind, and you got to have something that's going to keep your head warm. When it comes to your hands, what i found, when it gets that cold, there are no gloves that by themselves are enough. All right? Sitkas, you know, whatever they are, Inferno, Hand mitt, Balaclava, whatever or, uh, you know, the the flip mitts that they have that are $200 and everything else. Nothing is enough glove-wise. Nothing out there that I have seen or heard of is sufficient glove-wise in those kind of situations. All right, you, you, it's just, nothing is enough. So you need one of a couple things. You need some kind of a glove that you can slip some hand warmers into, some hot hands or whatever the case is whatever brand you, you can find and get cheap, you got to have some kind of glove that you can add those to. Or you need some warming pockets, you know, in your coat or whatever that you can throw some hand warmers into. You need something that will create and generate heat. Just trapping your body warmth is not going to be enough, especially when your hands get wet, which so often happens with waterfowl hunting. Uh, it's become really popular these days to use those hand-warming muffs it's just like a tube that you know you can hang from the front of your waiters or your coat sits in front of you and you can put a hand in each side meet in the middle and you can throw some hand warming packs in those. If you get a nice hand warming muff that may be the single best thing you can use in these kind of situations. I really am a big fan of them. You know, first first light makes a couple nice ones. Sitka makes the most expensive one on planet Earth. Cabela's has a one that's pretty good. It's their own brand that's a fraction of the cost. Um, you know something like that works really good. You don't necessarily have to pay the super high dollar ones to get the super good ones because you just throw some hand warmers in them. And as long as there's some kind of insulation and there's something that'll break the wind, those hand warmers will keep it warm in there. And you can just stick your hands in there even if they're kind of damp and that'll keep you warm and and keep you, you can just grab onto those hand warmers. What I don't like about them is that the way I hunt and where I hunt, there's a lot of unexpected ducks that come out of nowhere and it's not like you're you're able to see them coming from a mile away or hear them coming from a mile away and get ready. Oftentimes, you know, if the gun is not in your hand, you won't get a shot, right? They're just flying past. They're just coming out of nowhere. They just land, and you don't even know where they came from, although in those situations, if they land, you have time. But so much of the time where I'm hunting, I've just had ducks just appear out of nowhere, catch them right out of the corner of my eyes. They're flying past and if i'm not able to just stand and shoot, i'm not getting them. So, i do not use the muffs very much. Although on these kind of days, i uh this year i've been pondering, you know, getting one of the more expensive ones just because i'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter. I got to be able to keep my hands warm on these neg- or these 7 degree mornings because you know if if i miss if i lose a couple opportunities for passing ducks and so i can stay out longer and generate more opportunities that's probably better than you know my hands freezing off and having to leave after 2 hours so i am going in that direction right now i've not i've not pulled the trigger on that but Uh, It really depends on how much you hunt in cold weather. You know, you got to judge just like I'm trying to balance. Okay, what's the cost of a good, not the best, but a good mint? And then how much am I going to use it? If I'm only going to use it two days a year, then I don't know that it's worth it. So you got to do the the cost benefit analysis. I'm a firm believer that if, if there's a piece of gear that you use every hunt, that piece of gear ought to be the best it can be. It ought to be the best one that they make. I really do believe that. If it's something you use constantly, every single time, it ought to be an excellent, outstanding piece of gear. You know, I believe in having good waders. That's why I've been a proponent of high and dry for years now, since I bought my first pair. They're just, I believe, probably the single best waders out there in the price category. Um, If you want to spend less than $1,000, I don't think you can buy a better pair of waders. And so since I use them every single hunt, I want to make sure I have good waders that are going to last, that are durable, that are going to keep me dry. Same thing with, you know, with my gear. But there's not that many pieces that I use every single hunt. Um, You know, other kinds of hunting are a little different, but because I'm waterfowl hunting from September until February, right, there's nothing I use every single time except my shotgun. Which is why this past season I upgraded to a better shotgun. After wanting to for a couple years, finally got the Mossberg 940 Pro Waterfowl um, to replace the Mossberg 930 Waterfowl. Did an entire review on that on the blog, NewHuntersGuide.com. Did a pod or did a YouTube video review on it also, which you can look up. But you know, I, I believe that whatever you use every single time ought to be high quality. And so if that's base layers, if that's boots, um, if there's one particular piece of gear um, that you're constantly using, like the balaclava, you know, I got First Light's Tundra balaclava. I did a review on that also on YouTube. I think it's the best balaclava I have ever touched or laid eyes on. It's just the single best thing I've ever seen to keep your face warm and your neck and your head when you're hunting on days that are just atrocious like that. But if it's, there's only, if something you're only going to use one or two times or three or four times a season, you know, I struggle to spend a hundred bucks on something like that. I'm like, ah, you know, yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's the best, but a hundred bucks is a hundred bucks, man. You can, you know, you can, there's a lot of things you can buy with that. So you got to, you know, figure out, okay, what do you hunt the most and what do you need the most? And that's how you prioritize your gear based on use based on need based on safety you know you're dealing with super cold days you got to just make a call sometimes is it too cold to go out safely not am i not am i tough enough to go out that's stupid thinking like that is stupid it's is it safe to go out with the gear that i have i'll give you a great example last year i was getting ready to go waterfowl hunting on a particular monday well, it just so happens that Monday was the first day of arch, or of deer gut rifle season. And I was going to go out on public land and sit next to a stream wearing camo as probably hundreds of people in the Orange Army were going to be surrounding me on all sides looking for deer shooting and anything that moves. And Sunday night, I'm sitting there like, you know what? This is stupid. I should not do this this is a bad decision. This is not a, this is just not safe. The chances here for something to go wrong are too high. So I just canceled the hunt. I said, you know what? I don't, I don't know how I, why, how I even got this far, but we're just going to cancel this. We're not going to do this one this time around. This is just dumb. Yeah. I don't know why they even overlap those seasons like that in my state it just seems ridiculous. We ought to have a longer early season and then not have season during rifle deer when you have millions of people in orange walking around shooting at anything that moves. So I canceled that hunt cuz I was like, you know what? There's there's no there are no a number of ducks I could bring home that are worth dying for. Right? It's just not a good decision. So the number one way you're gonna survive hunting ducks in the winter is by making smart decisions. It's not about the gear, it's not about how you hunt, it's not about where you hunt, it's not about your boat, it's not about your waders, it's not about your dog, it's about your brain. You gotta make smart decisions, you gotta think smarter, and a lot of those smart decisions, like the one that I made to not go out on that day, you make those smart decisions before you're in the field. And that changes when and where you're in the field, when and where you're putting yourself at risk. That Those are the times that you can make a lot or the most difference. So guys, I really hope this is helpful for you. Head to the website, newhuntersguide.com. Check out everything I've already mentioned to you. Head to iTunes, leave a five-star review with comment because it's the number one way to help the show reach more people. Till next time, I really appreciate you guys. God bless you and go get them in the woods.